Amen to that. Interrogate your systems, change your thinking, live differently. I think that's really important here in this season of Lent as we walk through this space, this wilderness. Wilderness is this place that is difficult. It is difficult because we, are, we come face to face with us, right? In the wilderness, there's nobody else. There's nothing else. It is just us out there dealing with us. And so in wilderness, we not only learn new things, we are pushed to unlearn things that maybe aren't healthy for us. We, are, we come face to face with narratives that we have been building our life on that are not bringing us blessing. We come face to face with narratives that change the way that we see the world and damage the way that we interact with others that are, are not healthy. And so we are forced to come to, to terms and hopefully to change. That is what Lynn is about. Lynn is a season of realizing who we are, what we are participating in, and how, therefore, as we lead up into the Easter season, to the moment of crucifixion and resurrection, like that is not separated. The moment of crucifixion and resurrection are not separated from this journey of unlearning, from this journey of rediscovering from this journey of letting go of the systems of death that we have built our life on, now we are ready to enter into this new resurrected life. And that's why it's so important, this time that leads up into it, because we ain't ready if we just show up one day, just, just without preparation, we just show up at Easter and we're like, yeah, resurrection. We're not ready for that. We, it's, it's just an event. It's a celebration. It's a circus that we will leave in that moment. And we will go home and unchanged. But if we have been leaving the systems, if we have been in that place of examining our lives, and now we come face to face with the resurrection, now everything is different and everything has changed. We're going to get into Mark today in the parable of the soils, the, the parable of the seeds. There's many words for that. But first, I want to go back to Numbers. Numbers is um, a very, it's, it's a book in the Torah. And in this situation here, it's about the journey of Israel in the wilderness. They are here in the wilderness. And they are being formed and, and having to be challenged about the systems that they lived in Egypt for over 400 years. And now they're having to leave things that aren't good. They're having to adopt things that are good. And it is a challenge in every sense. And so in this one parable, I mean, one story here, they find themselves, they, Moses sends out some scouts and to scout out the land. These, these are, you know, scouts are ones that go ahead a couple days, they see what's going on up there, and then they bring back reports. And so Moses is, they're at this place of meeting other people who have been inhabiting the land for a long time. And, you know, I mean, we could get into, I mean, this, this whole idea of like the violence and is God ordaining violence and, and what, why the Israelites so bent on killing the people and like we that that's a whole nother place right and so like I don't want to neglect that but that's not what we're talking about today what I want you to see here is this idea of going out up beyond themselves and the narratives that we come back with and so Moses sends out the scouts and it says this they came back the scouts came back to Moses and the whole Israelite community they reported to them in the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land they brought back some fruit of the land they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does indeed flow with milk and honey. Here it is. Here is some of its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. And even, we even saw descendants of 
Anak there. The Amalekites live in Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Omaiites live in the hill country. Even the Canaanites live in the seas. The bears, tigers, bears, and lions. Oh my. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should, we should go up and take possession of land for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger and bigger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw are of great size. <laughs> I resonate with this, by the way. We saw the Nephilim there. And the Nephilim are like this ancient, like they're, they're like this ancient sort of mythological group of people that were believed to be huge. They were probably like six foot tall because people were smaller than. But we see, we, and this says this, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. They are giants and we are grasshoppers. And then the people rebel. They hear this support and they said to Moses, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into the land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children would be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us just to go back to Egypt? Ah, this is the word of the Lord for us and all the people of God. Here we see like some systems of thinking that may need to be transformed, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but maybe sometimes I resonate with this, that sometimes I hear reports of the land up ahead, of what's going to happen up there, of what's ahead in the journey, and I, I see and like, yeah, there's some good things up there, but what do we do? We begin to think on the negative. We begin to think of like, ooh, what could go wrong? Ooh, they are giants and I am a grasshopper and what can I do? There is no way that I could survive out there. There are so many problems, so many pains, so many persecutions awaiting me. I had better just stay here. I better just go back where I was. God, what are you doing? Why did you bring me into this place? I don't understand, God. And here in this season of Lent, maybe we, it's good to examine some of the ways that we respond, some of the ways that we interact with our thoughts in the world. I, I, I love this. I found this, and, and I, I loved what some of this idea is. Taking this piece of Scripture and talking about some of the cognitive responses, brain thinking that we do. And here are some of the brain thinking that, that this guy said, and I, and I really resonated with. And it says, one of, the, one of the kind of narratives that we need to redefine in our cognitive behavioral therapy is all or nothing thinking, right? Okay, so maybe you'll find yourself in one of these pieces all or nothing all or nothing thinking either everything is black or white good or bad easy or impossible that the spies verdict was the possibility of con conquest conquest it couldn't be done right there was no room for shading nuance or complexity they could have said it will be difficult we will need courage and skill but with god's help we will prevail but they did not their thinking was polarized either or, right? No gray space, no possibility for, for a wedge to get in somewhere to make a new space. One of the things I always think about like, is, is this possibility of interruption, this possibility of newness, this possibility of what could go right. If we can just find the solution, there's always a solution. I genuinely believe that to every single problem in the world, there is a solution. Now, those solutions may not be easy, but they are, they exist. We can figure it out. But oftentimes, we just get into the space of like, well, that can't be done. We can't have health care for everybody. So why even try, right? Like, you're going to die. 
that's just the way it's going to be. We can't, we can't, we can't do that. We can't do that. We can't all get along. We just can't do that. And so, like, well, we're just going to have to live in this divided self. No, there's always solutions to every problem. Next one. Another is negative filtering. Oh, okay, now, now, now we're preaching to me a little bit. I don't know about you. Negative filtering. We discount the positives as being insignificant and focus almost exclusively on the negatives. <laughs> Anybody out there? <laughs> no? No, I, I know. Y'all don't deal with this. I know. The spies began by noting the positives. The land is good. Look at its fruit. But then came the but, right? The long strings of negatives drowning out the good news and leaving an overwhelming negative impression for which the people said, we can't do it, we're going to die. The third is catastrophizing. Say that a couple times fast. Catastrophizing. Expecting disaster to strike no matter what. (laughs) This is what the people did when they said, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us die by the sword? Our wives and children will be taking his plunder. (laughs) The fourth is mine. Y'all with me? You with me? You with me out there? That's good. Keep, keep on. The fourth is mind reading. We assume we know what other people are thinking when usually we are completely wrong because we are jumping to conclusions about them based on our own feelings, not theirs. This is what the spies did when they said, we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and so we seem to them. They had no way of knowing how they appeared to the people of the land, but they attributed to them, mistakenly, a sentiment based on their own subjective fears. Next one. The fifth is an inability to disconfirm. You reject any evidence or argument that might contradict your negative thoughts, right? Somebody, so you have this negative thought, and then somebody brings up a positive, and they're like, but we could do it. No, you're wrong. That could never work, right? No one? No one? Bueller? Bueller? No one? The spies had heard the counter-argument of Caleb, but dismissed it. They had decided that any attempt to conquer the land would fail, and they were simply not open to any other interpretation of the facts. The sixth, emotional reasoning, letting your feelings rather than careful deliberation dictate your thinking. A key example is interpreted in the place that despise the fact that the cities were fortified and very large, or walls up to the sky in another place, they said. And they didn't think people needed to, like, that wasn't absolutely true. Had they stopped to think, they might have realized that the Canaanites were not confident, not giants, not invulnerable, but they let their emotions substitute for thought. The seventh is to blame. We accuse someone else of being responsible for our predicament instead of accepting responsibility ourselves, right? This is what the people did when the, the spies report. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. It's your fault. If only you had let us stay in Egypt. People who blame others have already started down the road of learned helplessness. They see themselves as powerless to change. They are passive victims of forces beyond their control. I don't know about you, but sometimes the emotions get in the way, right? When we are faced with uncertain futures, we begin to have these reactions. These, we get lost in our minds. We feel like grasshoppers in the land of giants and they are going to slay us. That situation will destroy us. That thing that we are facing will, will, will kill us. We are, we are defenseless against that thing that we are facing. But no, you are not. You are not. And so like standing back and understanding our thoughts sometimes aren't always right on, right? 
Our thoughts in our heads sometimes are a little bit distorted. And so I think a lot, this is a place of meditation. This is a place of prayer to understand ourselves again, to recognize like, okay, we're not helpless. We can face these things. We are strong. God is benevolent. God is on our side. Things will work out one way or another. They might not work out like I wanted them to, but they will work out because God is good and God gives gifts and God moves for us and God moves with us and God moves around us in order to bring good in our lives. And so this brings us to the text today. Y'all with me? You with me? Yeah, maybe two of you are. So, hey, you know, I'll take two. I'll take two. That's good. So we come to Mark today, and this is our main text for today. And you've heard this parable many times. If you're following with us in, in the book of Mark, you know, like, we've been through, like, healings and, and, and baptisms and exorcisms. And thanks to this point, if you were just following along and reading for the first time in this story, you would have to recognize that things were not going so well for Jesus. Jesus is able to do these healings and these miraculous things, but things aren't going well. Jesus was, at this point, abandoned by his family, pursued by the authorities, and pushed out of cities. This message is not being welcomed. This message and the person of Jesus is not being welcomed by the, by the systems, by the powerful, by those who are in charge of the world. They want to kill Jesus. The story is not going as they wanted it to. And so at this moment begins the first parable in the book of Mark. And it's, this is significant to me. Like this is the first one. It is sort of reframing what is happening here because things don't look like they're going good. Let's reframe that. The author is sort of stepping out and saying, let's be reminded of what's going on here. There are forces at work that are bigger than what you see right now. God is at work. Maybe it doesn't seem like it or feel like it. God is at work. And this, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into the boat and sat in on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things in parables by saying this, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But then the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they had withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so they did not bear any grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, and some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Wow. If you can see what's going on here, he says, then see it. See that the kingdom of God is unfolding. See that the kingdom of God is at work here. And this will be the work. A couple pieces that I, I, I think of right here is this, like this, to me and you, like to me, I don't know. Like I have a hobby garden, raised bed garden. I grow some tomatoes and cucumbers and such, but I'm not a farmer. I, I don't know about the cycles of, of life based in an agrarian society. I don't really know about what life would have been like thousands of years ago as a farmer, but it's a lot different than our life right now. But these people would have known it. 
Jesus was tapping in here into the system that they were lived in. They lived in an agrarian society, and they would have known exactly what it was like to sow seed. And this is not the way that you sowed seed. Like, I get this image, like, you, you even have some, some ancient images, right? Some art of, like, you see a, a, a farmer, and he's just spreading a seed. Like, they didn't do that. That's not the way people spread seed. Seed was precious. You know, like, in the spring, when you, sometimes I plant grass seed, Okay, I did once. I planted grass seed once. And, and grass seed is really like small, right? The seeds are super small and you get these huge bags of it and you basically just take a handful of it and you just throw it like all over the place, everywhere. And like even throw it like on your, on your, on your, your patio or on the concrete and like it's not gonna grow there, but like I'll sweep it off later and you just throw it everywhere. That's not how it was like. Like seeds were precious, in order to have a seed, like you had, to, you had to painstakingly seed out last year's crop. You had to dry that seed. You had to preserve that seed for a whole year. Make sure that bugs didn't get into it. Make sure it didn't get moist. Like this was your livelihood. Your children might not eat if that seed goes bad. And you didn't have a lot of it. You only had exactly enough that you would need because you had to eat the rest last year. And so here in this process of like, well, I need this much seed for the harvest next year, but this is how much we need to survive. Here's what we got. We got to protect it. And so going into next year, as you plant that seed, you're going to put it exactly where you want it to be. You're going to orchestrate that and curate that process. This is not just going and throwing out seed, but the parable Jesus says, this is what God is like. God throws the seed over here, even knowing that it might not grow throwing the seed out. God is benevolent. God is good. God is a gift. God is sowing everywhere to all people, even in those situations where people, they, like they're not going to respond in the way that we want, in the way that God wants, situations that aren't going to work out like we want in life. But still, the goodness is being sown there. Life is being sown there because God is good the farmer god is good and wants to bestow gifts upon us over and over again but the remarkable thing here is this idea that when it gets in good soil when this message of the kingdom of jesus hits that soil which is right and ready the harvest can be 30 the harvest can be 60 the harvest can be 100-fold. Like this, we, I, I don't know about you, but I don't understand that 30, 60, 100-fold. Like that's some old language. I don't quite get it. But, but margins-wise, profit-wise, like, okay, now we understand. Now, like that's, that's the message of capitalism, right? Profit on your investments. You make 100 times on your investment, what is that going to mean for you and your family? What is that going to mean for your future? What is that going to mean? It's going to mean that you are okay, that your children will be okay. Things will be all right. In the midst of poverty, because that's where these people were living, in the midst of an agrarian poverty system, the kingdom of Jesus is intersecting that situation and birthing enough profit so that people can survive, so that people can live, so that people can thrive 
Even some people might even be able to buy their land back from the landlords who bought up and gobbled up their land. And now they're paying rent on the land that their grandfather had given them because they lost it because the taxes were so high. Now, this message of Jesus is meaning they could have enough. They could flourish. They could live abundantly. That is the message of the sower. It is a message of gift. It is a message of generosity. It is a message of life through gift and generosity. And so I believe today we come into that space that we are called. And what, what does it mean to be good soil? I believe it means that, that we are people who also are going to be benevolent because benevolence and compassion and grace and gift are what produces the profit are what produces the 30, 60, 100 fold. I believe that is the space that we are called to enter into. That is a transformative soil that we can be as disciples. What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, I don't believe it means that you, you can beat somebody else in Bible trivia. I don't believe that's what it means to be a disciple. I don't believe that you can recite all the books from the Bible from beginning to end. And I, I don't think that's, I don't think it's about what you believe to be a disciple. I think it's about how you live. And living in a radical sort of abandonment to generosity, to gift. Because generosity and compassion and gift are what transforms the world. That is our call, friends. To live in that. And I don't, I don't believe this is just about our money. Sure, sometimes it is about our money, but I believe it's about our whole system of our life. We have been so ingrained. Our, our system of capitalism has so ingrained us, or whatever you want to call it, economics, has, has so ingrained us to be people who seek your own financial benefit that we have been framed that you're probably, you see yourself in this light. I see myself in this light. We've all been trained that you're primarily a consumer consume buy gobble up invest get as much profit as you can as she said property is an investment your life is an investment you're here to make as much money as you can you're a consumer and so as we get even framed into that idea of being consumers, we begin to consume one another, don't we? Because we see ourselves as consumers. And so we begin to consume those around us, consume relationships around us. We begin to take over here and take over there and take over here. And that's not ours, but we're going to take it anyway. And we're not entitled to this. And that person's hurting, but we need something. And it always becomes about what we need. I need. I'm in this state. This is my situation. I, my, my heart is, it, it needs care. My situation needs attentiveness me 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 because i'm a consumer and i consume people and i consume situations and i consume and i consume and i consume but we're not consumers y'all that's not who god told us we are i believe god has told us you are to be a blessing to the world you are blessed in order to be a blessing so that is not consumption language that is generosity language. That is blessing language. That is language of benevolence and compassion and grace and life. 
to the world around you. I believe that is our call, friends. And I believe as we live into that narrative of generously seeking the flourishing of those around me, we begin to see the world differently, don't we? As we look into uncertain situations that, that are, is ahead of us, the land which is ahead of us, which holds good things but has challenges, yes. All of our journeys have challenges. But you are not a grasshopper and that is not a giant. And when we begin to change our thinking to one of consumption and conquering, to a way of thinking about generosity and gift, then we don't see people as the same threat, do we? We begin to see people differently. Not that we are competing for the same resources, but God is good and there's an abundance. And so let's enter into that abundance together. How can my abundance come alongside and bless you so that you can live into your best life, so that you can live into your best future? I think, like, for me, a, p- a couple key elements into that living into gift is, is to embracing that idea of investing in people, investing in life, investing in goodness. I believe another, I, another piece of that is to be patient. Now, what does it mean to be patient? This, for me, is like, usually when we talk about patience, we talk about, like, standing in the grocery store line, right? And the person ahead of us is arguing about the price of baking soda and like oh my gosh really like i got places to go would you just like it's 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 really 93 cents it really doesn't matter just let's 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 move on can we move on or that person in the car ahead of you is just they're driving in the 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 passing lane and they're going under the speed limit and would you just move move would you just move back over that's at least that's what i do but that that's not patience I don't think that's what, when the Bible talks about patience, I don't think it's what's talking about that. Yes, we should be patient there. But I believe this idea of patience that, that Scripture talks about is the, is the bigger idea of patience. I believe when Scripture talks about patience, it's this idea that you and I, because we believe in God, we will not, we refuse to resort to systems of violence and manipulation in order to get what we want in that situation. We will be patient and we will love, and we will be a gift, and we will invest in compassion. That's what we do. And if we can't get exactly the outcome that we want through love, compassion, and grace, then we will be patient because we know that seed takes time. That seed takes time to grow. We won't resort. Violence is quick, y'all. You want want to get some result quick? Violently move in. Bring in the systems of violence, hurt other people, drag them down, push them out, and you will get what you want. But there will be collateral damage to that every single time. You will create death and despair, which you will in turn reap. But we are called to be patient people. Believing that God's kingdom is, is invested, that the good giver, the seed sower, has sown seed out everywhere. And this seed might take time, but it will grow. And when it does, it will produce blessing, and it will produce grace, and it will produce life. And because of that, thirdly, we are people of hope. We believe in a good future up ahead. 
We believe that God is at work all the time in every single person's life, always, forever. God is never going to abandon any of us. Whether we believe God is there or don't, doesn't matter. God's still there. God's still working. And so we have hope that this resurrected future is possible. We have hope that God is on the move. We have hope that this kingdom will grow up good seed, good plants, good trees. Later on, Jesus talks about the parable of the mustard seed and says, even though the seed is the smallest out there, when planted, it grows into a mighty tree where people find refuge and shade in. That's, that's the sort of, I think that's the sort of life we are called to be, y'all. We are called to be givers. We are called to be the patient ones. And we are called to be the hopeful ones. That, that creates a bigger story. That system of, of gift and patience and hope creates stories of abundance, creates new narratives, changes the way that we see the world, gets us out of our negative thought loops that we get into and our disaster and catastrophizing and the ways that we only see the negatives and what could go wrong and what will go wrong. Look, the, the, the way of thinking in gift and patience and hope is a way that reframes our minds, creates abundance around us, and invites us to live into a new narrative, a narrative of gift. What narrative are y'all living in today? You living into that grasshopper narrative where like, oh, I can't do anything and everything's against me and woe is me and I'll never figure this out. The land ahead of me is full of giants. You living in that narrative? Today, I believe we are being invited through this season of Lent in the season of wilderness to reframe our thinking, to realize that we're here to be gifts to the world, that we're here to be patient people, that we're here to be people of hope in order to give life to the world around us. You are the gifts. You are the gift givers. You are the ones to bring goodness 30, 60, 100 times blessing to the world around you. This Lent, let's reframe our narratives. Let's, let's twist them back into the space that is good and beautiful and honorable. And remember that God is good, that God is good, and that you are a gift to be given to the world. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks and grace for the goodness of your message. We give you thanks for your kingdom of generosity, for your kingdom of life, for your kingdom, Lord, of goodness and benevolence. God, we pray that you would bring life to the world around us and that you would use us to be a gift to all people everywhere, that the nations, that the peoples would be blessed through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.